So we're doing some pre-roll. Yeah, a little bit of pre-roll. But just to say, I, we tried some stuff, some new ways of recording, and it worked and didn't work. Experimentation is good. It can also be hard. <laughs> Change is good. It can also be hard. Right, right, right. And it was a good conversation with Christina today. It was though. awesome. Yeah. It's a great paper. Mm-hmm. Great conversation. Is it is it okay and desirable to smash up robots that hurt you? It's a great question. Should we punish robots? Should we take our revenge upon them? An autonomous car runs over you or you know, hurts you or hurts your property. Can you smash it up with a baseball bat? Oh. Should you be able to? Should the state have a big trash compactor and you, you should be able to go and watch this car be compacted? You should get to hit the switch that makes it get compacted. What social function does this serve? These are does all it need very to? good questions. What, are the, what, what moral valence does this have? Well, these are great questions, right? Yes. And Christina asks them and, and answers them. And I got to mention La Rochefoucauld. What? I'm sorry. Did you have some in your mouth? <laughs> <laughs> I mentioned one of the aphorisms of the French aphorist La Rochefoucauld. Hmm. Do you aspire to be an aphorist? Uh, no, not really. Is an aphorist someone who studies aphids? <laughs> no, I think you're thinking of, I don't even know what you're thinking of, an ornithologist? Mm. I think you're thinking of a paleontologist? I think it's an aphist. Uh, an aphist is someone who doesn't believe in insects, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's an atheist. Oh, can you tell we're, we're a little punch drunk here? Um, having had technical difficulties, but I think we got something usable, so let's... Let's just get on with it. Should we? We have a mailbag, oralargumentpodcast at gmail.com, oralargumentpodcast at gmail.com. Send some feedback. That'd be great. And we will get be getting into it soon, but not this episode. Correct. We're going to let it build up. Gotten some nice emails last week, though. Did you notice that? We did. Yeah, yeah. All right, so, um, so send it in. We look forward to hearing from you. And what do you think? On with the show? Yeah. Okay. All right, so here's the question. This All is right. the question with which we should begin. Recording is in progress. Okay. Uh. Which piece of equipment, Christina, do I get to go out and destroy in Christian's backyard to feel better about what I've been doing for the last thirty minutes? No, I don't even have. I don't even have a backyard, as you know. I think it's it's like... Definitely his computer, right? Like it's just. <laughs> it's clearly that's the one that's been giving problems. But wait, why don't you have a backyard? Well, I mean, it's yeah. This it's is just very small. It's very very small. We have a little porch. Yeah. 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 He's not, I mean, this is not true. It hasn't like been destroyed in a natural disaster since I last saw you. That's, (laughs) that's true. Um, That's true. And yeah, you don't have a yard. You have back property. You have a back hill. Ooh. Right. I I have grounds. You have grounds. (laughs) Right. We will call it Black Acre. (laughs) (laughs) No, we will call it Turn Acre. Uh, yeah, we, so we were in. Uh, yeah, so C- Christina, you are you're a tech person. You were up for tr- trying something new, so we're trying something new today in terms of the way we do the recordings. I don't know if it's going to work. For all I know, we could finish this and we can end up with nothing. Oh my god, what, that would be yeah. That would that be <laughs> that and, is horrible. It, it is a horrifying prospect. But like, I figure Christina is the guest to try this with. Thanks, guys. I thought my time is so worth. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's no, what no, it no. sounded like you were saying, it's, Christian. Okay, so so I I came off in a, in a different way than I intended. What I mean is that as <laughs> as someone who is like technologically sophisticated, Christina understands these. She understands boundary pushing. Yes. The piece that we're going to talk about is a boundary pushing piece. Absolutely. Like it is not a 70 page law review article. She understands great risks and great rewards. Right. And so we're going to try something new and she's up for fiddling. She says she's taking fiddling lessons even. I think it's a different kind of fiddle. I don't think, 
uh, because the kind of fiddling we've been doing involves like two different computers, yeah. uh, dongle hell. Yeah, fiddle in the dongle. Okay, I think we've got an episode title right there, fiddle breaking, in the dongle. Multiple mics on two. Yeah, we're trying to figure stuff out. Yeah. Because we're, we're in it for the people. And when you, you say Christina. destroy the dongle. <laughs> 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 when you say Christina, of course, you meant Christina Mulligan. Oh, did, did I? Who's joining us? I, <laughs> yeah. th- I think I think that's who you meant. Yeah, I do. Because that's who's on with us. I do. For Is this your second or third appearance, Christina? This is my second. The first one was when we talked for two hours about net neutrality. Yes, oh, yeah. that was so good. Yeah, I couldn't remember if we and had you And you were here in person for that because you taught at UGA at that time. Yes, yes. So it's very different now being in a, uh, having headset and microphones and not being able to, to see your hilarious faces making, you know, <laughs> Nonverbal signals at each other. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! I, I, it just makes me sad to think about Christina's time at UGA and how it is that no longer no longer know. happening. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, well. She's in New York. She's like, hey, see you later, guys. I mean, <laughs> I also don't have a backyard though, but but like a lot less of a not backyard than you do. So you know, there's there's pros and cons to all all change. <laughs> yeah, that's that's definitely true. But wait a minute, I thought a tree grows in Brooklyn. A tree, one tree. <laughs> oh, there's only one. That's right. There's so all of Brooklyn. Nice. Okay, it so doesn't, it doesn't hold a candle to the tree that owns itself in Athens, Georgia. <laughs> which is my favorite property law joke, whatever you'd call it, in basically the world. It is kind of a joke, though, isn't it? It's kind like... of a joke in the sense that it doesn't. There's no legal capacity for a tree to own itself, but I love the conceit that the tree was deeded itself to itself. And that, you know, you, we, we can't tear it down now because it owns itself. It's no longer property of, of human beings. It does seem very pro-tree. It's very pro-tree. But, but yeah, but pro-tree in a way that, well, this is Christine. Uh, this gets into Christina's paper. It's very like, neoliberal what in are, the way that it is pro-tree. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's definitely true. It tries to turn the, turn the knife of neo, neoliberalism against itself. I, uh, <laughs> I'm... I, I don't know what guys I uh I'm bad at jargon and I don't know what ne- I, I I don't yet have my like firm grasp on neoliberalism versus liberalism. What do you guys think it is? Well, I mean neoli- neoliberalism is the resurgence of kind of classical liberalism, right? So mm-hmm. the the renewed inf- the the well, you say renewed, but the renewed second wave of kind of law and economics. Yeah. Uh, if you consider like early classical uh, liberalism, meaning just you know belief in markets and uh, uh, and kind of the early wave of of faith in markets. You know, it was there was no formal rational actor model, and 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 there weren't really formal results. I think to the extent that there were after the you know after Coase. Um But I don't know if I'm am I saying this right, Joe? That sounds right to me. I mean, it's a yeah. It is. It definitely is reaching back to that classical. Which is what the word, which is what the prefix neo, I think, is intended to suggest. Right. right? That you're hearkening back to, um, you're taking new insights, so it's not paleo. Um, mm-hmm. you, you're doing something new. It's neo. Mm-hmm. But, it's, but it is that sort of Mill, you know, John Stuart Mill, James Fitz, James Stephen kind of uh, uh, yeah. liberal model. But placing it on modern foundations. Yeah. And, but it also carries with it the, uh, the normative, right? So when you say something is neoliberal, oh, sure, sure. it's really yeah. talking about a worldview as to what the world ought to be, right? That the world ought to be conceived or, or, or in normative these terms. in an edgy, critiquey kind of way. I mean, either it could be either of those, I think. Right. Wh- whether you're using it as a description or a smear. Yeah. Right. A- and as a smear, it suggests that you kind of are reducing 
modern life to a series of bargained exchanges, right? To and I wasn't, and I was neither currency. smearing nor sneering. Hmm. I was just kind of, I was, Joe was just Joe in. <laughs> Are we going to be able to use anything from this early no. part? Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> Well, no, we we will use it, but, but, I thought we, the, but we probably shouldn't. But we will. Uh, we shouldn't. You but know. we will. Uh, the I, I thought that, so. Uh, I, I always get a little bothered talking about the tree that owns itself because it seems like such a ridiculous conceit in a way, and it doesn't get it. I, hmm. So let's not talk about that. No, but, then, but it does seem to be a good entry point into um, in, into Christina's paper. So let us proceed into the paper. Do you want to talk about how the tree that owns itself? Im- I, is is a good entry point into the paper? Since channel? I don't comprehend how that could be so, either you're going to tell us or we're not going to know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, I mean, it has to do with the way that we conceive of non-human things as legal and moral participants. Oh. Right? And, and as to whether they are owed duties and whether they owe duties. And Christina's paper that we're going to talk about today, it's all about punishing robots hmm. and basically revenge as a as a theory, um, and how that applies to the desire to punish robots, not not just to to um, to punish people who program robots or people who sell robots or people who own robots, uh, but the robots themselves who cause injury. So uh, let's just let me just throw it open to Christina. Christina, how did you start thinking about this? Why did you start thinking about this? Right. So I um, I read this very different paper last year about how people emotionally respond to natural disasters um, by a new, a new professor, Alex Lehman, who just started at Marquette. And in his footnotes, they were they were like amazing. And they they were referring to this um, medieval law called Diodan law. Um, about an actual practice where when objects and animals hurt people, there would be legal proceedings concerning what to do about those, those objects or animals. And sometimes the result of those proceedings would be to say, you know, that cart that ran over your foot is guilty <laughs> and is forfeit to, depending on the, the time period and such, the, the crown or in an earlier period was would be kind of delivered sometimes to the person who had been harmed with the idea that they could then, you know, break it apart and destroy it out of anger. Um, and this is, this practice has been a kind of interesting mystery for more modern day lawyers. And a lot of the, Lehman was using it to say, Sometimes we need these gestures in order to make sense about to make sense of what has happened to us and to kind of restore our emotional positions or our psychological positions with regard to the rest of the world. Can, but, can I stop you there? So, yeah. so the transfer of the property, um, it's interesting you use the word gesture, which implies something like a communication between two humans about the property, right? And, and so like it's important that the process you're describing is not one of transferring the property as a means of compensation, right? That, that the property, having the property conveys a, a kind of value which is restorative because you say they can use it, they can destroy it, they can do whatever. Well, and it's the thing. It's not just a money value of the thing. Like it would be compensation if it were you transfer to me this much money because it would be about the loss value to me. But it's the thing itself. It has to be the cart that ran over my foot. 
Yeah, so it seemed to change in, in different time periods, and sometimes it was the value of the thing, but sometimes it was the actual thing. And there's been a lot of the scholarship that about animals and objects that kind of came after around 1900, the, the sort of question that it was wrestling with is, what is going on here? Because it, <laughs> you know, it, it seems preposterous to say that this is sort of doing justice by any kind of modern compensation, and there's, a, in a slightly different uh, tacked a famous story of a lawsuit in France against rats that had overrun a village, and they were appointed a, def- a human defense counsel who apparently successfully argued that um, the rats couldn't be subject to the lawsuit because they hadn't been served proper notice. Um, so it just seems like a crazy... <laughs> given our own current conceptions of what law is and does and what role it serves, it's really perplexing. And so one of the hypotheses is that um, what this, obviously there's no moral quality to the cart that ran over your foot. It's not the cart's fault in any kind of deep way or any, or, you know, it's, they, they don't have the same, we don't have the same conception of their, uh, of this object being blameworthy or being deterrable. Um, and so the, the, the idea is that the role that it's playing is a social role where we're using this ritual of turning over the object or socially sanctioning collectively this animal or object in order to kind of raise up the, the social standing or return to a state of dignity or honor the, the person who has actually been harmed. Well, I want to come back to that, but let me just push on what the, the last thing you said a little bit, because if the if the cart had been designed with some kind of foot guard or, or otherwise designed in a way that made it impossible to run over a foot, there is a sense in which the, the, the injury owes to the design of the object and the functioning of the object. And this, I'm kind of anticipating where we're going to go with, with autonomous robots here, but... Um, and and also with the complication of the word blameworthy and moral blame. But there is a sense in which the injury owes to the object, right? And not just the operation of the object to the extent that the reason that the injury occurred was because of the way that the, because of the object, right? Because of the way it was designed or because of its current state, if it had deviated from its design, you know, through the vagaries of time, right? Yeah, I mean, it, the... There, it, it, causation is always a very complicated concept because there's an infinite list of causes behind any one thing that happened, right? So the, the cart ran over your foot because the wheel was loose. The wheel was loose because someone didn't properly repair it when it broke. It broke because it wasn't properly designed in the first place and the person who placed <laughs> it on the cart was lazy. That person was lazy because this other thing had happened to them. And you can go go far and far back. And so, I don't know. I don't know why she swallowed that fly. And I don't know why she swallowed the fly. Um, <laughs> right. And so, you know, in in tort law, we have this idea of proximate cause. It has to be a close, direct cause to what actually happened. Uh, you can't have a, a. You can't go back infinitely many steps and you know go to the hundredth thing away from the incident that we're thinking about and say you're the the legally significant cause. Um, and I think that leads into what you were getting at with the idea of blaming the object versus blaming the person who made it or repaired it, um, where you situate that blame, 
uh, has something to do with the way we are understanding the, the causes at play. And animals, unlike uh, inanimate objects, uh, have a greater resemblance to, to us as a source of will and a source of choice um, and something harder to understand. So when you look at the cart injuring your foot, um, the role of the people who made the cart, who maintained the cart, who were driving the cart, the role of those human beings is very prominent in your field of vision, right? Because they're, they're centers of will and choice and action. And because the design um, is simple and observable. And, yeah, and the cart itself is, seems fairly straightforward and seems to obey sort of conventional scale laws of physics and et cetera. So it's, a, it's not that complicated. You focus on the people because they seem right. to be the main determinants of why you got hit with the cart. Whereas if it's, a, if it's an animal that gets loose and, and runs into you and hits your leg and hurts your leg or, or bites you or something, then, it's, then now we've got a, th- a thing that looks more like us, right? Yeah. It isn't us, uh, but it looks a lot more like us than a cart does. Um, right. Actually, the, the, to me, the animal analogy is uh, so interesting to in terms of thinking about autonomous vehicles or autonomous uh, robots or other other entities uh, that may right. come on the scene soon. So maybe we should so maybe we should step back and talk about the the sort of robots at, at issue um, that that sort of raise this this question of causation. Um, so when we're talking about um, we're talking about objects like you know hand carts. Um, you can t- think about human causes for its movement. Someone pushed it, someone didn't repair it correctly, and so it rolled with gravity. And maybe there's some cases where, you know, there's a big gust of wind and it just blows it and there's no there's no human fault or, or real cause to that happening, but it's something that we can observe, but that's beyond beyond human control. But in all these cases, it's pretty clear what the causes are of the carts of the carts movement. When we're talking about animals, Um, it gets complex. We can train animals um, and they can usually respond in accordance with that training. You know, so you can give put input, give inputs to an animal and often see really concrete results. But at the same time, animals are the cause of their own actions in the sense that sometimes for reasons that are too complex, you know, if we're talking about dogs and cats and, and animals like that, for us to understand, they'll do something different. And the best way for us to understand what's going on is to conceive of that as the animal being the cause of its own actions. Now, maybe it's the case that if we were super good at physics and really understood how every molecule and was bouncing around um, and could really map everything out, we could come up with a perfectly causal picture of why um, the dog bit the mailman um, or something like that. Um, but the since we can't do that, the the sort of easiest way of talking about what happened is that the dog did that. Whereas in some cases with with objects, you would you know maybe we say oh the cart ran over his foot, but if we think about it for five seconds, we'll say the wheel fell off, the wind came, and so we don't really think of of inanimate objects as causes in that same kind of way. Well, let, let's bracket for a moment the question of free will and the distinction between human animals and non-human animals, both of which I'm kind of um, skeptical about. Uh, but Be, Because if we, you know, uh, yeah. on Christina's suggestion that if we knew enough, we could explain the dog, the dog bite. 
Maybe. Um, or presumably, maybe presumably, we would be able to explain human behavior in the same way if we were as sophisticated as that. In which, so if you call into question the, 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 the dog as an actor, you'd call into question humans as actors as well, it seems to me, in that scenario. And, we're, and, we're, and we, of course, we can't do either of those things right now. Which is why Christian's suggesting maybe that we should bracket that. Well, that I'm not, not saying we should bracket it for the whole conversation because right. it is but something I want to come to, right? right. You know, yeah. you know, and, and the free will of a thermostat, and you know, it's like, you know, <laughs> but, this, that, but this distinction leads into what is interesting about a lot of robots and computers as they are being developed nowadays, which is that they they have they seem autonomous um, in the sense in, in two different relevant senses. One is that um, they are not programmed by a person to say turn right, turn left, if X happens, do Y, but there's some ability to learn and to act based on environmental inputs that happen after the programming. Um, and then a subset of autonomous algorithm uh, of autonomous robots or or algorithms like that um, are running what we call black box algorithms, which are so complicated. Um, there's so many calculations going on in such short periods of time that the people who programmed um, those programs, who programmed those autonomous robots, um, if we're talking about self-driving cars or something like that, cannot explain to you exactly why it turned left at that moment instead of stopping or, or something like that. It's just so complicated that, you know, there were so millions of calculations going on that a human being can't unwind it and explain what the, the computer, what caused the computer to turn, turn left instead of right or something like and that. And I would say that people are like, everyone should be familiar with these things. We talked with Frank Pasquale a long time ago about the black box issues. And he's written extensively about this in addition with Ryan Kahlo about the same issue in robotics, but whether it's Mac OS or windows or iOS, these pieces of code are so complicated that no one person can actually tell you uh, at, at any given time, exactly how everything works mm-hmm. and instead. And I would argue just like people, dogs and other things, the people who have control over these code bases have models of how they work. Right. And so and which is, you know, and and with with code, like object oriented programming is is how these things are coded these days. And so I don't have to understand every aspect of of Mac OS, for example, uh, to understand how the how the computer generally will respond to particular inputs and outputs, because I have a model of how its pieces are connected. And that model is wrong in the sense that it's not granular enough to. Um, to connect a precise set of inputs with a precise output. And, and the result of that is I can't anticipate bugs and other things like that, right? But so, so even the kinds of um, computing interactions that people are well familiar with, just with your phones, for example. Already raise these issues. Already raise these issues because there is no single human being who understands, who, who can actually do the algorithm in their heads. So let me ask a question, yeah. therefore, from a deterrence perspective, based on the points that, that the two of you just made. One thing I wonder is, again, from the point of view of social policy that, that we might want to adopt to try to deter certain events from occurring, are these systems such that although it might be impossible for a person to understand them fully in the sense that you guys were both just describing, is it possible for us to say to a designer – 
Whatever you do, make sure the following thing does not happen. Can a person achieve that objective, a designer? I think it depends on what that whatever you do um, predicate actually is. <laughs> right. um, there's certainly, you know, it, it, I think it's widely agreed that completely bug-free code is impossible past a certain level of complexity, but mm. depending, you know, based on, but depending on what the specific thing is that you never want to happen, that may or may not be, be achievable. Um, but this is a, a good thing to bring up in the context that we can certainly increase the chances that um, autonomous vehicles or robots with some kind of autonomy are safe or don't do specific things by putting pressure on the people best in a position to deter it, which are going to be the programmers and the manufacturers and, and parties in those kinds of positions. And just like products liability law in general says, listen, it's not, it's not whether you are negligent or not. It's strict liability because we want to give you every incentive to not make bad things happen. We could, say, we could choose to say that for um, autonomous robots um, or you know, uh, we could choose to incentivize other things um, like giving more immunity to, to people in those positions in order to facilitate more innovation. And that's, that's an interesting policy choice. And, the, and that's what a lot of people have been talking about in this area. And, the paper, and, and it's a very like, typical conversation, right? Yeah. It's about like, because it, it just is like in an emerging field, uh, how much do you want to subsidize uh, innovation with letting losses remain where they lie, right? And how much do you want to deter, like how much do you want to do some cheapest cost avoider stuff? How much do you want to do some social insurance? And strict liability does all those things. Yeah. But it but it puts the cost on the people who are innovating. And sometimes, yeah, maybe people who are injured should bear the cost in order to, which right. is basically a subsidy, but it's a subsidy that you don't have to tax for. <laughs> so it's like, so it's a very conventional conversation. It's a non-transparent subsidy in the, in the way that, you know, Justice Scalia used to criticize um, uh, uh, regulatory takings, right? They're, they're kind of off books subsidies for certain kinds of inf- innovations by not, uh, it's just by, it, by letting the loss stay, by where, letting it the loss yeah. stay where it is. Yeah. Um, but what I'm interested in is actually a question that is ancillary to that, which is we can make these choices about which parties bear the costs of misbehaving robots as they become more and more prevalent in our society. Um, and that sounds really zany and futuristic, but you know, we have Roombas, self-driving cars are around the corner. This is, this is real. This is happening. Um, but as we talk about where the financial harm lies, uh, we're missing another key role that, that tort law and criminal law play, um, which often flies under the radar of our um, academic and policy discussions about these subjects, which is the role that these legal institutions play in psychologically healing people who feel they have been wronged and are hurt, not just in a, an economic way or a physical way, but also in a, in a psychological way. Now, Christina, if we had been, so, so if we were the kind of podcast, which was like, we got to think about grabbing our listeners and not letting them go. Like we got to, you know, we, we, started with this. <laughs> what we would start with is we would start with a story of someone taking a robot that hurt them and smashing it to pieces. And we would make that a vivid story. We'd you have know, sound effects, too. Oh, well, for sure. For sure. And we'd have different hosts. Let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, but that is so. So what you're talking about, right, is like there's a function of tort law and maybe maybe even other kinds of law um, that that is to give. And, and, and you describe in the paper as the satisfaction which can arise from vengeance of seeing like 
publicly someone else suffer and connect, connecting the suffering they're experiencing to the bad choices that they made earlier, right? And that this feeling may arise from causing a robot to experience what looks like suffering, even if it is not true suffering, we can get into that. Is this going to, am I kind of summarizing in an okay way? Yeah. Um, and that's, uh, and that sounds crazy. So let me try to make it sound less, <laughs> so let me try to make it sound a little bit less crazy, which is, yeah. you know, and I, I borrow really happily from a lot of the work of Scott Hershowitz, which is, who's at the University of Michigan, um, who has written a bit recently about, the the satisfaction creating aspects of tort law and how it replaces vengeful urges. So um, the the idea is the following: when bad things happen to us, we we feel kind of undercut, right? You're you're angry at the the what, whatever you identify as the cause of what has hurt you, and you want to reset the world. Oh, you, Joe Joe is nodding enthusiastically. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I was inside. <laughs> uh, and depending on kind of what framework you're you're into, you might feel like you've lost honor, you've lost dignity, um, your social standing has been diminished in some way, and you want to set that aright. And there's multiple ways of, of doing that. You know, in modern times, um, societal judgment can play that role. And I think in the the Taylor Swift case where she sued the person who grabbed her for nominal damages, that's a case of saying it's not about being economically made whole, but it's about there being a formal process that indicates that this behavior was wrong and not satisfying in a, in a meaningful way. Um, there's a lot of psych, uh, there's a lot of research rather that sometimes people really just want an apology from the person who hurt them and either would not have sued or would have asked for less money or accepted less money in settlement if they got an apology from the alleged wrongdoer, um, and you know my favorite my favorite example of uh, what I think of as satisfaction getting that uh, your 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 position in society set aright is uh, dueling law, or rather uh, the the practice of dueling from a few hundred years ago, um, where sometimes you know the previous cases were about. Uh, the Taylor Swift case, the nominal damages or asking for an apology is about a person or a society accepting that they behaved in a wrongful way or declaring that a wrongful action had taken place. But what I think is fascinating about dueling is that sometimes no one admitted wrongdoing, but there was a ritual by which one's social role was reset. And I think it's because the people who were in the dueling position were placed in a superior and an inferior position by engaging in this action. If you don't shoot, you know, if you don't draw blood, if you spare the person on the other side, um, you're, you're granting, you know, you're, you're letting them, you're choosing to spare them. On the other hand, if someone else spares you, then you also feel gratitude. You're kind of indebted to them. And this ritual that re puts you in a superior and inferior position kind of sets your social standing equal to that other person's. Um, so in that way, also, we can get to a satisfactory position. Um, so the problem with robots is that... Well, before I get you there, yeah. so, so uh, how um, how does this differ? And I have not read this article by Hershowitz. I mean, you could have a whole career where you do nothing but read Hershowitz and think about it. But so Fair I have enough. not read this particular one. Um, how is this distinct from, say, the Goldberg-Zapersky view of tort law? Maybe you know, maybe you don't. I know tort law is not necessarily, you know... 
your entire scholarly focus. So maybe this is unfair, but uh, how does it differ from their view of like the corrective justice function of tort law? And they, cause they've been pushing back long against the, you know, the kind of the, the law and econ cheapest cost avoider deterrence focused view. Um, so I am not well versed enough to get the nuance off the cuff. Okay. Um, but, in, but let me say in terms of, it's not corrective ju- what, what I'm talking about by satisfaction is not corrective justice in the sense of putting you back in the place that you were before um, in the, the more concrete sense, um, which is I, I've sustained $5,000 worth of damages, and so you have to give me $5,000. Um, so one, there's a, the other, another way that people get satisfaction that we just dis- discourage it in modern societies through revenge. And that's, that's what the paper starts getting into. And yeah. one of the, the, a funny thing about revenge is that it's not corrective in the sense that sometimes revenge just makes things worse, right? So the, 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 the an eye for an eye idea, if you're mm-hmm. blinded in one eye and you feel a lot better, if you blind the person who caused you in one eye, you're not, you're not made any better and they're made worse in this um, kind of objective sense of the state of the world, um, but the person might might feel better. Now we don't want to encourage that kind of behavior because um, of a whole host of reasons. It's it's deeply punitive. It's cruel. Often people uh, when they, what they see is equal behavior, other people see as escalation, and then you end up in Hatfield and McCoy type situations. Um, and in fact, there, there's evidence about that. It's systematic, right? It's systematic. Systematically, people feel hits to themselves as harder than the hits they inflict on others. Absolutely. So let me ask, can I I ask about correction? I want to ask about the, um, so a thing not mentioned in in, in your paper, but might be an example, and I just want to make sure I have it right, an example of something that is corrective without offering any um, benefit on the uh, satisfaction scale for the injured party um, is workers' compensation regimes, where like we don't ask at all how the accident happened. Like yeah. which one of your coworkers might have been participating? Um, who bought that machine? We don't ask any of that stuff. You get injured at the job. There's a table, a schedule. This is what you get for that injury. Um, it's there's an insurance program that supports that, uh, and we try to make it as fast and quick as possible just to correct the problem. Like no fault auto insurance too. I mean, that, yeah. that might be another example. Yeah. So I'm just trying to think no of examples auto, where sorry. we get correction with absolutely no satisfaction. Right. Um, and in those cases, it would be interesting to see if there's something that the people who receive the benefit feel is sort of missing. And it might yeah. be, and it might be that there's enough of a public function of, of announcing or saying that this bad thing happened to you, and so. Um, we are we are trying to correct it in this manner that that sort of counts as societal judgment rectifying or acknowledging the wrong that happened to you in a meaningful way. But I think it's also possible that it it feels a little empty, um, and I just don't know. And so, where on the as I think about this, um, the satisfaction function, and and I wonder. Um, whether we're we're dealing with a phenomenon that is sort of socially um, paying no attention to it doesn't sound like a, a necessarily the right approach, uh, but paying too much attention to it also sounds like it might not be the right approach. So there's sort of like an inverted U function 
of like we pay enough attention to whether people feel like there is satisfaction that restores them to a dignitary status quo ante that they that they can accept versus fostering a sort of um very counterproductive honor culture that can lead to those sort of you know one eye eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind I would layer on top of that problem what right what you're saying Joe also is like is your reason for wanting to hit the right part of that inverted U instrumental or are you instantiating something that you think is right you know what I mean? I mean, so yeah. Although I, I, I think that even if you didn't have a right wrong question about where that where you were on that curve, I was making the more instrumental point. I, I, I knew you were. I'm just, um, I was just like emphasizing that you need not view it instrumentally, right? right? In the same way that like retributivists sometimes don't see that as like right. just dissipating social uh, friction. But, and, right? and the reason I asked this, Christina, is because I found, I mean, I found the discussion of dueling in in, in the paper so interesting and 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 you know, so um, compelling. But of course, it also occurred to me as I was reading it, you know, it scares it seems, me a little bit. Hmm? This scares me a little bit. Well, right. Know. And it, and and maybe the dark side of that is, you know, it's it, you could think of lynching as serving the same oh, function. Yeah. Um, but for people who are in different, very different social classes, instead of in the same social class, um, that the satisfaction function might only be vindicated in an instance where you can demonstrate that the other party is not human. Um, even though they appeared as if they were. So it's yeah. like there's a very dark side to satisfaction too. Absolutely. Um, and, and, and Especially which you, when I it's think not individual. I mean, yeah. the, the, the lynching example is a non, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a caste versus caste yeah. kind of satisfaction that right. is especially, you know, troubling. Right. right. Well, duel, so dueling was made illegal because a lot of people and, and discouraged socially over a long period until it finally stopped because a lot of people uh, were injured and killed doing it. And that seemed like not the socially most uh, preferable outcome. Um, <laughs> but acknowledging what was, but asking and acknowledging what was going on is interesting for design, is, is helpful for designing future systems that may not have those same drawbacks. And so the, totally. I think the answer to your question, Joe, is that um, is to distinguish between revenge and satisfaction, which is that I think satisfaction is a good thing when you feel that your situation has been put aright. And it can be achieved in good and bad ways, in ways that are kind of pro-social or anti-social. And usually, uh, so on, on balance, dueling anti-social, um, taking... Uh, vigilante vigilante justice that may not be justified because we haven't gone through appropriate procedures, very antisocial. And revenge, um, often, depending on what form it takes, is really problematic, probably ends up on the antisocial side much of the time when we're talking about hurting humans. On the other hand, when we're talking about wanting apologies or Taylor Swift asking for nominal damages in the, um, the, 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 the groping case that she was involved in, those seem very pro-social in the sense that they're bounded in appropriate ways. There's not a lot of negative externalities where we really worry, is this going to get out of hand? Um, and so the what we do want satisfaction. We just want it in the right way. And one thing that, um, and you say the right way, but like it's, it's, if we take an instrumental view that the reason socially that we are paying attention to satisfaction is to dissipate social friction Mm -hmm. and to reduce the risk of, of, um, self-help and, and other 
you know, negative social consequences, then I, you know, then we have to look at, are we going to be interested in subjective satisfaction or objective satisfaction? And then to the extent that satisfaction results in remedies which go beyond what would be needed for deterrence, then it seems like if, again, if we're taking an instrumental approach, we have to balance like under satisfaction against under deterrence and, or over or, or over deterrence against under satisfaction and over satisfaction against uh, under deterrence, right? That, that both of those are going to be social costs. Sure. What's interesting in the, the case of uh, autonomous robots is that questions of deterrence and retribution become very, very separate from questions of satisfaction. Um, so we may be making choices about deterrence based on uh, thinking about programmers and manufacturers of these objects. Um, but if someone, once they are hurt, feels really angry at the autonomous vehicle that, um, ran, you know, hit them, um, or the, the Roomba that ran over your foot, is that, that's probably defamation of Roombas, but you know, the, the, autonomous, <laughs> the autonomous vacuum cleaner that, uh, that, that runs over their foot or something like that. And trying to rectify that psychological condition seems quite conceptually separate from making the right policy choices about um, deterring uh, poorly made products and even punishing people that might have been more, uh, not punishing, but being retributive against people that might have made poor choices in their design. Especially in the instance that uh, which you describe in the paper, where the autonomous item is one that is acting out of pattern. So if you have a problem with product design um, that ran across all the units of the product, that's much easier to address in the deterrence vein, right? Because you just get people to make better designs. But the property of these autonomous systems is that they will individuate. Right. There will be a unit of that robot that is doing something bad that other units of it are not doing. And it seems to me in that instance, it's all the more, you're all the more likely to feel as an individual who got hurt that there's something about that specific unit that needs to get addressed, right? That isn't really getting addressed if you're just talking about deterrence. This is like shutting down HAL 9000. Right. It's shutting down HAL. Um, the, bam. Bam. The, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the... And, what what I think that, so the the it, the, what this paper is really about, even though it is on the surface about physically punishing robots, comma, which sounds crazy, comma, is that um, <laughs> it really doesn't to me. But whatever, <laughs> I, just I shows knew, how crazy I am. I but, knew that I knew it wouldn't sound crazy to you. It does it does sound crazy to me? And that's why this is a perfect paper for the show. So, all right, so but, sorry, Christine. Uh, but, but the but is that when we insert technology into our lives in these really intimate ways, um, we upset a lot that is really settled about human interaction and relationships. So the, the tort system kind of provides satisfaction almost automatically when we're talking about people versus people. It's doing a pretty good job of um, playing that role of saying you have been wronged and your situation will be righted and it's, it's that person's fault or they're responsible. Um, when we put 
technology in these sorts of positions, it upsets the complicated social and status signals that humans give to each other because robots don't give them back. And we don't even notice this because we're so, it, it's, it's so unconscious. Um, so when we have non-human actors in these positions, it makes us have to think about these issues consciously that we're kind of just automatically taking care of beforehand. So what I would say to, to your question, Joe, about kind of, are we, do we have too much or too little satisfaction? Um, or, or focus on that in tort law, it's that we don't tend to think about it that much, though Hersevich does, um, in our normal telling of what the law is doing. But situations like this where deterrence and retribution become really untied to the things that create satisfaction, we suddenly do have to think about it um, and think about it consciously. <laughs> You're looking at me blankly. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm I'm looking at you because I thought you were about to say something, so I was trying not to interrupt. You. I just I, don't you have very complicated feelings about this though. So, it, it, so it, uh, I think I've made clear that I do have complicated I, feelings about it. Yeah. So, um, the a lot of the paper turns on. I don't know if a lot of the paper turns on it, but the. This idea of the moral responsibility of like assuming that robots don't have a kind of moral responsibility, but maybe we should act as though they do because people expect it or whatever else. And I'm not I don't know whether to take this conversation into whether inanimate objects or non-human animals can have moral responsibility and what the idea of moral responsibility means in humans. Like, I'm not sure that those are all that distinct. Um, that, do we want to go there, though? I mean, so what what is do we want to, maybe this is the way to take it, um, to the extent that people want to smash up the uh, autonomous vehicle, let's say, let's suppose that they do work, contra atrios, that they do work eventually, and, and eventually <laughs> they go on to individuate because they learn things. I mean, that's not how they work right now, but maybe they learn things, and, and one of them acts differently than another, and one turns out to be the reckless driver, and the other doesn't, uh, and, and you just want to smash it up. Um, or smash well, and, up and injured a person injured by it says yeah. in addition to being compensated uh, that that car has shown itself to be a problem in a unique way and I want to get it from you so that I can decide whether or not I'm going to smash and it and you're not relevant it is it, when, when you the person who owns who, it or who owns else. it or designed it right. or right whatever and is there a sense in which that that the the vengeance you take out on that thing should be irrespective of it, like like its expense, because this is non-compensatory. Whether it's a self-driving 747 or a self-driving car, like those are very different. If you smash those up, you're getting very, you know, you're destroying very different values, right? Sure. I love I love this little bit of Brooklyn we're getting in the background. Yeah, I'm sorry. No, oh, no, no. no. <laughs> we like it. We're, we're going to leave it in because it sounds they're emergency vehicles responding to some kind of vehicles, you know yes. injury. Or something a horn like blows that. in it's Brooklyn. Just going to uh, keep going. We can just we can just redo this part later. No, not <laughs> at all. No, no, it's staying in. It's it all stays in. It all stays in. So. Right. Uh, so, uh, like, do we want, um, do we want people to have those attitudes toward these things, and 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 can the law shape those attitudes? Uh, you you concentrate on this in the piece, and in, in in parts, if I recall, that uh, you know that the the kind of the expectation generating function of the of the law and. I don't know. Do you, and this, is this in the animal cruelty portion of the paper? Because, it, I mean, that's one of the downsides of, of again, if you're thinking about are you do you have enough of this or too much of this, is that, you know, fostering um, 
if you were to confer on people the, the, this right, you created a mechanism and assume it's a mechanism that is neutrally administered so that it's not self-help. There is a, there is a, a process people have to go through, just like there is with nominal damages. Um, so, so there's a process you put in place and people give this right. Should we – I mean in a way what we're saying is it's, it's, it's OK. Like we're encouraging people to think of that beating up a, a, a robot, <laughs> smashing it um, is a good thing for people to do under certain circumstances. Under Not certain under all circumstances. circumstances. <laughs> right, but under certain circumstances. And, and if we think – and this was the, sort of the animal cruelty portion of the paper. I mean part of what we might think is being cruel – even to a non-human thing, fosters a taste for cruelty that we should not be encouraging. And that therefore, you no, you do not want to give people the right to do that. Uh, because you're, you're cultivating in them, even if you limit it to certain circumstances, you could make the critique, you're cultivating in them a taste for uh, a, a dehumanizing activity that is going to they're going to injure themselves in that way and it makes them more of a threat to the rest of us right so so for example having a legal regime where and i don't know the degree to which our legal regime has ever worked this way or does now or could in the future but a legal regime that says you know if you're bitten by an animal not only are you able to recover the, the medical costs but you're also given that animal to decide whether or not to kill it um, that's a vi- that encourages certain thoughts and feelings and behaviors that that not having that legal regime does not encourage. And it reinforces a, mo- a a social model of morality and reality that we would rather people not have, or or, or would I'll we rather or not yeah, that yeah, people yeah, have yeah. it? Okay, yeah. right? Because because some people might think it's a good idea, um, but but I think that's the that's the very provocative set of questions that I think this paper raises. Right, and you know the at the end of the day it to me is a is a descriptive question, which is, does that happen? Um, do those negative qualities get cultivated when you give people the ability to take revenge on objects through a more formal socially sanctioned process? Um, so the one analogy I don't, we've as far as I know, at least in 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 recent you know the the, uh, the the medieval system probably did occasionally turn over animals to other people. But in recent times, we still have, um, if it, you know, if a dog bites people regularly, there are circumstances where judges can say that that animal has to be put down and the owner doesn't get compensated, even if it sort of seems like it's not their fault in some way. Though I guess, you know, you're supposed to fence, fence the dog in if it's dangerous. But the, there, there, is, there is precedent for taking away um, dangerous autonomous aut- autonomous creatures. Um, the interesting question is: is it is it worse if you're um, if it's not entirely through the formal governmental process, but it, there's a part where at the end it's the harmed person who gets to choose what to do. But there's also a there's also a condemning dangerous structures, and you know we we take away things that people control. Whether or not they are, are autonomous, if they present certain dangers, and and I would think that the, um, you know, we don't know why one dog is dangerous and another is not, but when one dog has proved itself to be dangerous, um, then you know that kind of, you know, uh, you know, removing the owner's control over that dog or perhaps even destroying the dog is. Right is where we go. And that doesn't seem to me different in kind from condemning dangerous structures or taking away other dangerous property. And, and I think there's an, a, a separate question about let, let's assume you have a dangerous animal 
And the conclusion has been reached from repetitive uh, injuries that the animal is inflicted uh, that the animal should be destroyed. Um, I think it's a separate question entirely um, to, to ask who should do the destroying um, mm-hmm. and who and how, right? And the satisfaction argument would suggest that there's an, that there could be an important ingredient to allowing the wronged party to be the one inflicting Ugh. the destruction. Yeah. And, and that... And to the degree that that's what's happening, I think that's <laughs> – it really heightens the sense of like, wait a minute, um, maybe that's not the right way to go here, right? Maybe it's not yeah. – you give the person the robot and they can decide whether to go beat it, um, smash it. Maybe there's an office of robot beating that <laughs> – like these are the people who are professionally trained to beat robots who have been uh, – you know, adjudicated to be a beating yeah, deserving. Just, it just so you know. I think you know our minds have the capacities to conceive of our very complicated world and create models and categories. You know, this is my general idea about this, right, yes. Joe? I mean, you're going to roll your eyes over this, probably. Not but, at all. Not at all. But, I love the hobby horse. You ride it so well. I do have a hobby horse here, and 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 so we create like. Uh, our models of reality, like we, you know, the, the ourselves, our bodies are less discrete than we typically think of them in everyday life, right? I mean, there's all this research about how there are communities of different kinds of critters that make us up, right? And we, and our minds work in ways we don't understand. And if you cut the corpus callosum, you're more like two people, you know, all these things which attack the idea that we have this kind of unified self and that others have these separate unified selves. All of this, you can attack based on current science. But nonetheless, we carry around with us these models at all different kinds of scales, depending on the question that we're being asked, okay. of of a world in which we are a unified self, a decision-making entity, and we are interacting with other decision-making entities. Okay. Right? And these other decision-making entities will sometimes make decisions which are helpful to us, some neutral, some harmful, right? And our our moral system is oftentimes, it, it's, a, it's a system of, like, the, the kinds of decisions we expect other people to make under certain conditions... And one way that you can see assault, like if I, if, I, if I want to take vengeance on you, right, or if I have that impulse or I think that you ought to make amends, like what I'm really doing is we're, I'm trying – I'm suggesting that something ought to be done to bring our models of, of, of social behavior back into alignment, right? Well, Your decision-making structure needs to be brought back into alignment with, with one that I find but acceptable. in a very important respect, and I think that, that with, this, with the satisfaction concept – at least as I understand it from Christina's paper, is that that sometimes a wrong committed against you, the implication is that you were not you were not a fully dignified person worthy of respect on a par with the thing that injured you. Some injuries are like that. Some are not. Um, the ones that are like that, that put your dignity and your dignitary interest on the block in a very direct way, seems to me you could legitimately conclude that needs to get remedied in a particular way. It needs to get remedied in a way that answers that aspect of what happened because that's what that injury put on the table in a way other injuries m- don't. Mm-hmm. And 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 that, so it's not just a clash of models and I need to realign your model with my model. It's they were out of alignment in this very particular way. So, okay, Christina, you're back. We had, hey, hey. We, had, we had technical challenges. We used a service that would that probably it probably sounds better before this point. Christina sounds better now. Christina sounds like our guests normally do, which is over Skype, which has the issues. You know, which sounds good, but is yeah. not the Wait, most which, awesome. Oh, Christina, which microphone are you? Is is Skype on? I'm on the Snowflake. 
I mean, I think this actually is an indication that maybe the paper is onto something because the technology we were using was so threatened that yes. it decided to stop our conversation. <laughs> totally. It was totally thwarted us. Yeah. yeah. The, totally the, thwarted us. The, the World Wide Web intervened to cut off our very productive conversation about beating the blazes out mm. of the web by intervened taking it or, into the backyard. <laughs> intervened, <laughs> intervened or supervened? <laughs> it it veined. Uh, I don't know how yeah, it veined. It veined. I think we were talking about the kind of delicate psychological position that the idea of taking some kind of physical punishment to robots yeah. might place us in, and that it might, as um, a researcher at MIT, Kate Darling has hypothesized in several papers, lead to gain, you know, cultivating. Uh, really asocial behavior and making humans worse off. And then the question, which I think is a pretty descriptive question, is whether if we do it in the right way and, you know, by having a formal social process that acknowledges the kind of wrong that happened and says in this limited circumstances, uh, circumstance you can um, act on the on the object if some of that concern is mitigated because we've, we've done things in this uh complex specific social process and i you know this is i say this not having any anthropological background uh but it does seem that in society there are a lot of things that we think you should not do all the time but that we carve out specific circumstances where we say within these boundaries this is going to be okay, and the, the any harm will be mitigated so long as it stays within those boundaries. This is the theory behind the movie The Purge, I think. <laughs> Another thing I am not suggesting is <laughs> a good idea. Right? The, the danger of this paper is that it sort of sounds like it's apologetic for, um, uh, you know, uh, re- revenge as being a good thing, and it's it's not, especially because a core part of the paper is that the, the robot, given that it doesn't experience anything, isn't harmed. So, um, and so yeah. you lose a lot of the moral reason why you would not want that kind of behavior in other circumstances where you have uh, creatures that can have experiences uh, on the other end of the action. So how critically important is it to you that in this model, if we were to conclude that part of giving satisfaction to the injured party is to see the particular autonomous thing, the particular robot, physically battered, right? How critical is it to you that the injured party is the is the party who does the battering? It, I, you know, that that again is what I would say is a is a descriptive question over what does the what gets sort of the job done, right? So it might be. It might just be knowing that by bringing the action, something has befallen the the object of one's anger. Well, and I ask because if we look at our legal traditions, it seems like the the move is to is away from having the injured party be the one to exact whatever exaction is to be made. That rather what we do is we move we take into the hands of the of neutrals and third parties in the state the job of doing the thing. In other words, towards a an actual monopoly of violence and not just a monopoly of the control of violence. Yes, and, and, and not just a monopoly yeah. on deciding whether it will happen, but how it actually gets carried out. Right. Yeah. And that that could be an important way to further kind of refine and ritualize and neutralize some of the downside of 
of having this thing because I'm because per- you know I'm perfectly prepared to believe that it would be beneficial and might could and could even be constructed in such a way that it would be net beneficial for the person injured to see that the injuring robot gets punished in some way. I I, I disagree, but but okay. yes, but let's uh, for the purposes of argument, I think we should With, continue without, down this line. Yeah. without yet concluding who is the appropriate person to do the punishing. Yeah, so I think that that might be it. Might be enough, uh, and the one question is whether the role of the state giving the um, the punishment, for lack of a better word, um, is mainly playing a role to not cultivate something in the person who's harmed who might want to take on that role, or if it's it's to avoid maybe or at least mitigate the Hatfield and McCoy problem, which is that if the um, if the person who was the original victim of some crime or tort um, then is placed in a position where they're allowed to enact some kind of vengeful behavior themselves, it may be perceived by the initial wrongdoer and their allies that that was an escalation and that they want to take action again in an, in an extra legal way. So maybe by the state taking on that role and giving the punishment that it disentangles for the wrongdoer who the cause of the retribution or the punishment is and then hmm. doesn't allow the, the escalatory problem to happen, which would not be present in the, the robot kind of case. object case. And right. the truth is, I don't know how much role that that, that that plays at all. So here's, here's what I'm thinking. If the, if the pro-social purpose of, of granting satisfaction through the, by, by inflicting suffering or what appears like suffering is that it, it does the job of, of, encouraging the alignment of, uh, of, of models of, uh, of social obligation and whether that's in the field. And, and oftentimes I think this works in the, in morality, uh, uh, so that, so that when law grants a, a kind of remedy, which satisfies, um, a taste for vengeance, it usually does it when there is a, a breaking of the moral code and not just, um, and not just, uh, kind of, um, rules of coordination, right? The, the, usually laws which piggyback on, on moral understandings. And so the pro-social purpose, I think, of, of, of granting, um, you know, indulging a preference for vengeance is, is that it, it does that job of bringing those things, of bringing our models of, of morality into, into alignment. Um, but I'm curious how that ever applies uh, so, so if we take that view, right? This is the instrumental view of grant of indulging a taste for for vengeance, or at least a taste for satisfaction. Then, how does that ever apply to animals or to robots? It seems to me that it it doesn't work because there's no um, un- unless you make the robot sensitive to the legal system, right? Um, and, and certainly for non-human animals, um, the treating you know. We can punish animals. People do punish animals. That's how you train them. Uh, we can encourage animals to be uh, non-human animals to be sensitive to human needs, and you know. But the relationship is never going to be like another 
human being who we expect to be responsive to written rules and to um, verbal commands of, of greater complexity and to understand institutional roles. Uh, I guess we could program robots that way so that um, when they're punished, they understand, they kind of internalize punishment and they change their programming in relation to um, that punishment or they, um, or, or something happens which is the equivalent of suffering within a robot. Now, all of this is complicated by the fact that I, I'm not sure that there's a huge difference between humans and and robots, uh, a qualitative one, um, but that's a, a longer discussion. I mean, so I, Joe, you and you and Joe both, Christina, I think have a have a. I'm not sure if you have the same instrumental view I do of indulging this preference for satisfaction. Maybe that's the difference between us all. Is anybody understanding what I'm saying? I don't, Joe, you're looking no, at me. What like do you puzzled. mean by What do you mean by instrumental? Because it is it's instrumental in the sense that to the extent that making someone. Um, economic and physical situation or right doesn't fully place them back in the position they were before the wrong happened. Um, that well, yeah. psychological satisfaction is something that is, is instrumental to that person being better off and has to be weighed against other pros and cons and other values, just like, like a lot of other things, if you're taking it all a, a consequentialist view of the world, which I, I think we, we kind of share here. Um, well, I'm not sure that Joe does, right? That, so that, but so what, I, what I'm suggesting, though, is that um, – so, yeah, the one kind of instrumental goal you could have is just the reduction of social friction, right? And so you indulge satisfaction to the extent that indulging satisfaction is kind of less costly than the, um, the uh, over-deterrence that you're causing on a deterrence rationale. So you kind of make that kind of judgment and you indulge – a preference for vengeance to the extent that it makes it, it in a cost-benefit sense. Another one, the w- other one I'm suggesting here, though, is that the the role of kind of evening things up and 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 feeling satisfied that someone else has suffered also is a way of like uh, of coordinating your 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 models of social responsibility and morality, right? Mm-hmm. A- and um, and that that's really the harm. What do you mean when you say coordinating your models? Meaning that. Um, uh, if we disagree about how to proceed about things, like you think a certain kind of thing is fine and I think it's not fine, right? And um, and you do something, and it, which I think is not fine, and it hurts me, and I punish you by making you suffer, right? It's going to lead to one of two things. Either we're going to disassociate and go our separate ways. We just can't come together. Or we're going to have to bring those things into alignment, right? It creates this kind of uh, – that's this is like an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind, you know? Maybe, right? Except to the extent that taking a few eyes makes everybody not take any more eyes anymore, right? Because people uh, and, start to, I, and right. I see, and I'm seeing it in a very different way. I know you it's are. Not it's not that way at all. Right. So it's, um, so so that what's what's important is not how you aggregate this over the run of items, but rather that as between these two individuals, the the slight that one inflicted on the other, or the harm that one inflicted on the other, um, can't be set. Right until the harmer says to the harmed party, like either I'm sorry or something that shows that although it looked like I was implying that you are not a full, equal person of dignity on a par with myself, I didn't mean that at all. That isn't true at all. I think of you having as just as much dignity as I do. I was not using you as a means to an end. You are an end in yourself. All of that, that's what restores balance as between those two people. And a lot it's of the, not about right. aggregating over a run right. of cases. which is you're taking a non-consequentialist position where a lot of the work in what you just said is in that – is in 
um, is is in the wrong that you're identifying, right? And that you can tell right a consequentialist story about how we'll be better off, but in the sense that there will be less friction among people, right. If along the way, this is how they work through their jostling and, with and, each right, other. And that was my first instrumental explanation, right? The first instrumental ex- explanation is that you know that you have to weigh the cost of potential violence from self-help and everything if people don't feel restored or just underinvestment, you know, um, not becoming a full member of society because like, you know, if if, if people are going to take advantage of me all the time in this way, I'm just not going to, I'm going to be a dropout, right? So against, right, against the fact that if you're going beyond compensation in a deterrent sense, like in the way you're over deterring and you're reducing investment on the other side, you're reducing other things, you know, so you got to, that would be the, the instrumental cost benefit friction story. The other story that I'm suggesting is that, that, that all, that these acts of wanting to take vengeance and, and actually satisfying a preference for vengeance are a direct way that our minds are kind of coalescing about what is right in our society. Like we're building a social model of morality and and vengeance is a direct way of communicating and coordinating in those models. And either people will just, you know, say, well, we can't, we can't coordinate. We don't have the same model of morality here, so we're just not going to live together. But if they are, but, it, but if they do, right, if the, if the society respects your right to vengeance here, it's res- what it's saying is like you really need to get in line, right? Uh, and, and we're solidifying around particular kinds of rules. And, um, and, and the suggestion, if that is the explanation, right, and not social friction, then it doesn't make any sense necessarily to um, uh, to indulge a preference for vengeance against non-human animals and that can't robots participate in the that coordination. Can't participate. But it totally makes sense on the other instrumental explanation, the, the social friction one. It it seems though that both of what you are you articulated um, can be can be true in that. Uh, Christian, if there are certain, um, let's say there are certain values, norms, things you want people to do, behaviors, and then when someone, and, you know, in a, in a kind of bottom-up way that societies create norms, these, these rules for behavior have emerged, or maybe we've codified them in statutes or law. Um, and then when someone has transgressed one of those rules, even if it's not something that seems inherently taking of some someone's dignity, if that's not addressed, that has that undignifying effect that that Joe is talking about, right? So you you it, through 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 very little fault of your own or no fault of your own, maybe you you destroy someone's property by your neighbor's property by accident, and if you say, "Well, I don't care," then that's the that's the dignity uh, denigrating move. Um, and so the rebalancing that is the way in which people can continue to have positive repeat interactions. And, and I, so, I, yeah, I'm just saying that like it make that makes sense if if you if you're like if you understand the object of the vengeance as a decision making entity, which also is capable of experiencing suffering and responding to that in some way. Uh, and so for instance, like if you, if there really is a doorway, which is too low, like it, like, you know, you shouldn't design it that way and you hit your head on the way into the restaurant, right? Um, 
like you could take a sledgehammer and just knock it down. Like it, like it really shouldn't have been that low, right? And <laughs> it was designed that way poorly. But it is not an entity which is a decision-making entity capable of experiencing suffering, much less right. changing its programming on account of the whatever uh, right. suffering it's programmed to feel. Well, here's so this is where I think human psychology plays an interesting role, which is that even, it might be that the fifth time you hit your head on the the door, the, the top of the door frame. You just feel really angry that the stupid door frame is the way it is because yeah. it makes you feel stupid because, you know, every time you walk through it or half the time you walk through it, you hit your head because you're, you're tall. And it may be, you know, the, there's the scene in the movie Office Space that I talk about in the yep. paper where they're so, the three guys in the office have had so many terrible experiences with this printer that gives it, gives <laughs> them these confusing error messages that they, they don't know how to respond to. And they take it out into a field and they beat it up with a baseball bat. And that seems intuitively, you know, as we see in the film and probably experienced ourselves, um, that sometimes we do feel that objects are, are insulting us or slighting us. And it may be that our brains are wrong in the sense that humans attribute all sorts of things um, living characteristics that are not, that are not living. And a, a lot of the really interesting research about robots um, is that humans are very quick to kind of attribute personalities and characteristics to robots that are obviously ultimately inanimate. Mm -hmm. um, and that it, it is, this may well be adaptive in the sense that it is easier for humans to understand not just animals, but maybe, maybe plants and weather and all sorts of things by attributing beliefs and characteristics to it, even though that's, it's ultimately mistaken, it may still have predictive power. And so it may be that just because we are, we are merely humans with merely human brains, it still makes us feel bad when objects hurt us, and it makes us feel better if we uh, hurt them in response. Yeah, so letting them smash up the doorway that was too low, like whether you want to indulge that preference as an instrumental matter totally depends on whether indulging that preference is more beneficial than costly. Right. right. And, right. and so the printer, you know, you look at the val how often will people do this and what circumstances, um, does it bond people together, et cetera. Go, yeah. Go so, ahead, so the, I think, thank you for, for going through your, your story about morals coordination again, because I think I understood it uh, the second time. And I think that uh, although I agree with you that, um, that certainly there, a, a robot getting punished is not, <laughs> because robots cannot participate in morals coordination with us the way other humans can. Mm -hmm. I, I see that point. Um, so they're not first order. It's not helping as another first order effort at morals coordination. But there might be sort of a second order contribution it makes to morals coordination. And it's sort of by analogy to hypocrisy, which is uh, was famously referred to as the tribute that vice pays to virtue, mm -hmm. right? So it's the, um, the, the ongoing existence of a thing that flies in the face of what we all think is right is in a way a, 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 a nagging problem. And so even if it doesn't, as a first order matter, you're not really making it right because it's not the same instance. It's a non-human thing, not a human thing. Mm -hmm. By making it right, you just sort of get things to be tidier in the way that they come. So your second order 
effort is supporting your first order effort because it, it makes it look like you all really do take that more seriously, right? Um, a, a, a robot that was sort of just rolling around effectively cleaning a room which is what it was principally designed to do, but that was also constantly hurling obscenities. <laughs> um, would, you, would, you would totally buy this, wouldn't uh, you? Well, A, I would totally buy it. But B, because <laughs> I, I, I would be laughing a lot. But, but B, I think it would, people could rightly say, look, why is that thing allowed to keep doing that? I mean, it's like, because it, 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 it kind of suggests that we wouldn't mind if we were all the ones hurling obscenities, but we don't think that's true. Right. We think it wouldn't be okay for us. So why is it okay for it? It's not okay then for it. Um, See what I'm saying in the second order, first order, like you're supporting the first order coordination by insisting that this that this other thing, which is different in very obvious ways, nevertheless, be brought into line. But that's not the way it like, you know, we our dogs like poop out in the open. Right. And we pick it up with plastic bags and no one thinks it's okay for people to do that. Right. I mean, (laughs) <laughs> that, that's true. There are oh, some there real. Was, there, there are some definite framing issues going on. There was here. A, there was a story of the pooping jogger though that I saw, and she was arrested. But it might, and you might think differently if you were thinking about like, okay, where like was the dog trained to like? We do think differently about dogs pooping inside the house versus outside the house. I mean, we put training effort into ensuring that the former doesn't happen and that the latter does, and therefore the way we. The way we might say, okay, if you're pooping inside the house, we need to have more training. Like there's corrective action that needs to be taken mm-hmm. because we want to – we do have a preference for the way things should be as on the first order even if the second order isn't quite up yeah, to scratch that, yet. See, that's <laughs> – I think this is the unique kind of coordination that occurs between human and dog, right? That, that Because if we want to live together, we have to, we have, to have an understanding of how this is going to work and training as a way of, of – of of having the, helping the dog right have a model of its world, which yeah. is one in which it goes outside to poop. Right, cats you don't do that way. They go to a litter box and Correct. and other critters. You know, it's just well, you're going to be in this cage and it's going to be full of poop and we're going to clean it out every now and then, right? And well, in those cases, it's just a matter of what level of generality you're at because the 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 the, the ultimate rule is that there's a there's a a time and place for these functions and that's going to be the particulars of that are going to be cashed out differently where you're whether you're a dog or a cat whether you're an infant whether you're an adult etc um but I, I think there is some support for joe's idea um even though it's going to <laughs> instantiate differently in different circumstances it made me think of a, a blog post um by a, a guy named Hunter Walk, and it's uh, the title of it is called Amazon Echo is Magical. It's also turning my kid into an asshole. <laughs> um, and the, the money quote from it is, uh, cognitively, I'm not sure a kid gets why you can boss Alexa around, but not a person. At the right. very least, it creates patterns and reinforcement that so long as your diction is good, you can get what you want without niceties. Um, and so this isn't about Alexa doing something wrong in, 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 in itself, but the the idea is mm. that if a you know an another a, a human person would say why are you talking to me like that and kind of exert the the the, the norm modifying behavior to change what what the child was saying and Alexa the robot does not and it creates this sense in the in the author and maybe in the rest of us that Alexa maybe needs to be brought into line to participate correctly 
in the the complex system of norms about how we talk to each other in order to not undermine um, what Joe identifies as the, the kind of first order or, or, or the norm creation that happens by humans. Yeah. You might also think that Alexa should have a like a there are kids in the house mode where it doesn't work unless you say please. <laughs> like there is a design issue there, right? I mean, there's this news story just the other day about I would make yours work where it didn't it didn't respond unless you said "damn it." <laughs> <laughs> there's uh, this story the other day about a um, a mirror, uh, and it, the inspiration this person had was oh, for, for cancer patients, right? That but the mirror doesn't work unless you smile. Oh. It's terrible. Um, that and doesn't do- that make you want to smash the mirror? <laughs> right. Well, the mirror creators thing was it would make you want to smile. But my my point is and the, the commenters that I saw on this were all like, you know, we have enough dudes telling us to smile, and now even the mirror is going to be telling <laughs> exactly. us to smile. It's like, uh, but it but it's it's a you know this the the way you're engineering the 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 effectiveness and the interaction and the and the social norms performance that's built into integrating the robot into our process or the the automated entity in our process it's got some quirky problems to it for sure yeah uh, we we have gone on way too long speaking of wanting to smash things up yes and have take vengeance on technological things which as far as we know do not experience we, we, well we know do not experience suffering as we do but we hope they experience some kind of suffering. I we... desperately want them to experience some <laughs> kind of suffering, know, yes. There is one last point that I want to make, which is Absolutely. that I firmly believe Lieutenant Commander Data has rights. You know, it, this paper makes uh, raises the question of, of whether uh, where the line is. And uh, for, for conceivably sentient robots like our dear friend on Star Trek, right. I just want the record to officially show that I, I think he gets all the rights of a human being. And your paper is clear on that point, and I'm glad to have you be clear in our conversation <laughs> on that point. I agree with you. Um, notwithstanding that, I mean, you know, Captain Picard did an okay job at that trial, but, you know, whether or not he did, uh, Data is the winner for sure. I have more complicated thoughts, and we will talk about it another time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I don't necessarily disagree. Um, but all I can agree on now, because we've been at it for, for much hours. longer than people are listening. Yeah, 15 or 16 hours we've it's been at this. It's not, <laughs> not quite that long. Um, the only reason we've been at it so long is because... The technical is because Well, no, because Joe made us start early. Because, you know, shut Joe up. gets up at like 4 in the morning. Uh, and it, it, by 7, he's like, is everybody, you know, everybody up, everybody up. He's sending out emails. Let's get things started. The rest of us are like, hold on, Joe. Hold on a little bit. Slow your roll. I'm learning a very important lesson about your ability to handle my polite, friendly requests. Oh boy, for change! Can, I have can to we say, take the other podcast software out into the back and just like <laughs> <laughs> we we tried something. We tried, it and parts of it were fantastic. Parts didn't work so well. Um, but talking you know, to Christine is always fantastic. Absolutely, absolutely. So thanks, thanks for joining us. We'll do it again, and and we won't uh, we won't make you a guinea pig next time. I, I was thrilled to be back here. Uh, this is great. Thank you so much.